My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. We concentrate on just decarbonizing society, something that we need to do and that we know we need to do without focusing on the other issues that are at stake. What we're really going to end up with is a society that has greened theft. We know that so-called Canada is based on the theft of Indigenous lands and life. And we see a just transition as a potential entry point into re-examining and remaking those relationships. That's the voice of Emily Eaton. She and Bronwyn Tucker are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. You've probably heard this argument before. Rather than focusing on a narrow vision of decarbonization, the climate movement must recognize the roots of the climate crisis in colonization, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and so on, and must therefore understand its struggle expansively as an effort to challenge and transform all of those things. There are still plenty of people in environmental organizations and the climate movement who just flat out reject that, but at this point, my sense is that there are also plenty and perhaps more, who recognize that there is something to it. The challenge, though, is moving from the level of accepting the need for such a just transition and for the broad movement of movements it will take to get there at the level of intention and rhetoric to actually figuring out what we need to be doing collectively on the ground. The End of This World, Climate Justice in So-Called Canada, is a book recently published by Between the Lines Press that thinks through these issues in grounded, practical ways. It lays out both the case for and a tentative framework to begin working towards not only a just transition, but an explicitly decolonial just transition. The book was written by six authors, two of whom are Cree, four of whom, including Tucker and Eaton, are white settlers. The six collectively bring together many years of experience in indigenous activism, the labor movement, youth and other community-based climate organizing, international climate work, various other social justice movements, radical scholarship, and grassroots journalism. Tucker has been involved in a range of climate organizing in Montreal and Edmonton, and her current day job is related to the international side of climate justice work. Eaton is a professor in geography and environmental studies at the University of Regina, and her academic and activist work has touched on a range of social justice struggles, including climate and indigenous solidarity. The book project began from an interest in thinking through climate justice work in explicitly decolonial ways, and the team of authors was brought together with an eye to assembling the necessary skills and experiences to do that. The process of writing was a collective one. Rather than different chapters being written exclusively by different people, as often happens in multi-author books, the labor of shaping both ideas and words was shared among the six of them across the entire book. This was a more laborious way of doing things, but it was quite deliberate, as a way to realize in both the process and the content of the book what they recommend for movements. That is, working to undo the silos into which our movements are so often divided. 
The book begins by starkly laying out the crises we face, particularly the climate crisis and the intertwined 500-year crisis of colonization, and the current troubling orientation of the Canadian state in that context. Then it explores the kinds of things that we need to be working towards as part of a decolonial just transition, and the final chapters are about the kinds of things we need to be doing to make it happen. The book's decolonial emphasis is both thoroughgoing and practical. It presents a framework that begins from indigenous understandings of the treaties and then applies it throughout. That includes to questions where the relevance is obvious, like the importance of supporting indigenous-led land defense struggles and land back. But it also includes applying it in lots of other key areas that most settler writers and settler-majority movements completely detach from any considerations of colonization and decolonization. Things like how green infrastructure programs should work, what we should be doing to defend and expand public health care, the importance of workers' struggles, and lots of other things. As well, the book has a staunch movement-building orientation. The final two chapters in particular take that up, using an approach that will likely be accessible for people who haven't really thought about movements before, but that still gets past platitudes and into the practical substantive questions of doing grassroots political work. I speak with Eaton and Tucker about the climate crisis and colonization, about the end of this world, and about the struggle for a decolonial just transition. My name is Bronwyn Tucker. Today I'm in Toronto, so Dishwith Wenfboon Territory, but I've spent a lot of the like work we're thinking about in the book on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. I got involved in this kind of work as a student in Montreal during the student strikes and from there started doing a lot of things associated with the youth climate movement. And then in Alberta, a lot of that work was working with different NGOs around a just transition. Also, a group I helped start called Climate Justice Edmonton, working on a bunch of different proposals for climate justice and Indigenous rights in Alberta. My name is Emily Eaton. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Regina. I grew up in Saskatoon in Treaty 6 territory. I did my graduate work in Ontario and came back to Saskatchewan in 2009, where I am Treaty 4 territory. I've been involved both in more of my academic work, but also in a lot of community projects over the past couple decades. So various different organizing efforts around not just sort of environmental and climate change, but more broadly social justice struggles, whether that was, you know, a campaign for access without fear in Regina or a newer project around the Treaty Land Sharing Network, which is a group of farmers, ranchers, and other rural people who are attempting to begin to honor the true intent and spirit of the trees by welcoming Indigenous people to access their land. Our book is about a decolonial just transition and thinking about what are the strategies and pathways that we need to pursue quite practically to get there. So you are two of six authors for this book. Situate the six of you in general terms with respect to the topic. In terms of the kinds of work that different folks have been doing, there's a couple of journalists, there's Angel and Jewel, and uh, I would say actually others as well who have been also quite involved in the labor movement. Angel and Emily are both academics. Four of the authors are settlers, and Angel and Crystal are both Cree and have been really involved both in their communities in terms of specific environmental defense or treaty defense work, 
And also they both were involved in a ton of different projects that are both related to climate justice and indigenous rights. And one piece I actually just missed my current day job work on a lot of international climate justice work. And so I think we do also try to bring in that really internationalist perspective of, you know, having not just climate justice within Canada, but really making sure that Canada pays climate reparations and, you know, stops Canadian corporations abroad from the kind of Indigenous rights and climate violations that they're very involved in. How did the idea for this book emerge and what was the process of writing it like? One of our co-authors, Dave Gray Donald, has been involved in publishing, including Between the Lines, where this book is published. And he was seeing a need for another climate justice book, but in particular, one that really tried to center Indigenous rights and sovereignty. And so he approached a few of us and we spent some time assembling a team and making sure that we could have a strong basis on all of the things that Bronwyn has just talked about. And then the process of writing the book I found really interesting. This book was really, again, mapping that vision and trying to think about where people are at and why they're frustrated with the current situation, if they care at all about Indigenous rights and climate action, and how we can communicate what we think is a compelling vision and bring people along in that process. We decided in order to do this well that we had to be co-authors, not just co-editors, where each person would write one chapter and each chapter would have a particular perspective, but that we needed to really integrate all of these themes in each chapter. So that was both very rewarding process and also time consuming. Like we met for years on end in meetings, flushing through the ideas and the principles and everything that would be at the center of each chapter and really supporting one another, I think, in the writing and the revising and in the craft of it. A lot of the argument at the heart of our book is really around a pretty familiar argument, I think, to lots of folks that climate change impacts everything and that winning a climate justice future means working really deeply across movements and issues and not having things in silos. And so I do think the collective nature of how we wrote it and our different backgrounds is really a nice mirror of that future that we want to see. And then I think also just because Dave held a lot of relationships already in community organizing or social movements, probably not across the board, but I think a lot of us maybe wouldn't have otherwise written a book, at least maybe not at this point in time. And so maybe a cool thing in terms of a lot of people that are really involved very directly in communities or on the ground that maybe don't usually take the time to do this kind of thing. We've gotten some questions about the title of the book and why we decided to call it The End of This World. We're hoping that that title is still a really hopeful message, asserting the case that we need really dramatic and bold change and not just tinkering. And then also poking a bit of fun at, I think there has been this culture of a bit of like nihilism in the pandemic of a lot of just like jokes about the end of the world that I think have been weaponized in a way to try to make people disengage. And so I think hopefully trying to play on that a little bit and encourage some more folks to engage or re-engage. And then the third piece behind the title is around also recognizing for a lot of communities, this is not the first apocalypse or the first existential threat for certainly a lot of indigenous communities in Canada, but also lots of communities around the world. There's been lots of existential threats that there's yeah, just that rich history of resistance that they have, you know, survived and continue to survive to this day. And so trying to point to all three of those things with the title. What's your understanding of the current moment that sets the context for the arguments that you make in this book? 
We began to write the book in the early days of the pandemic. And I think to a certain extent at that moment, there was this sort of rupture that was happening and there was some optimism that maybe we'd come through the pandemic, you know, having dismantled some of the things that have been holding us back and with a new understanding and commitment to the future. As the pandemic has dragged on, in some ways, this book is more needed than ever because people are feeling a little bit down about the ways in which things have been going back to business as usual. I don't want to say post-pandemic because we're not out of the pandemic, but post-lockdowns. So we see overlapping crises, including environmental crises, but also this long-standing crisis ever since colonization of denial of Indigenous sovereignty and rights and really theft of land and Indigenous life, as well as deepening inequalities of various different natures, whether those are inequalities associated with race or class or ability we are seeing all of these compounded and the solutions that are being proposed by many of the people with positions of power, we don't think are adequate. We referenced at some point this moment in like 2015 or 2016, where like, I think because with I Don't Know More and different climate activism, I think both of these issues had gotten more attention, but then we kind of see them engulfed in some ways by the Trudeau government, but any kind of like not all the way right wing governments where we see a lot of lip service to reconciliation or to climate action, but in really, really shallow ways. And so I think because of that, and then because of, you know, now this stretch of ongoing public health crises and wild inflation, I think a lot of the solutions we talk about are really, really popular, but I think people are also really distraught. And I think there's just a lot of anger and maybe just realism that maybe didn't used to exist, that things really do need to change. And so I think it is hopefully a good moment to be trying to tap some of that. What does the book say about what we need in this moment in terms of general responses to the climate crisis and specifically the kinds of things movements should be doing? Often a nonfiction book will end with some calls to action. And I think after we wrote it, we realized why it's hard to do both, but I'm really glad that we did of like not just covering, okay, here's the problem and here's maybe some policies or like what we could do to fix the problem. But I think what was exciting to spend quite a bit of space on was power analysis or strategy of like how we could win some of the things that we call for in the book. We give a bit of a list of like ways for individuals to get involved or some of the lessons that we've had from different collective work things like the need to try to build organizations or pursue strategies that really meet people where they are at. And so trying to look at where your relationships and skills or resources are and try to make it easier for people in their workplaces or like local school or using some of those identities or institutions where people are spending a lot of time already and trying to work on strategies that are able to grow how many people are involved. Beyond that the broader point was really around social movements having a bit more of a blueprint or kind of like scale and predictability behind them than I think we sometimes give them credit for. Like what the public will see is a big rally or march, but just all of the work that goes behind those things. And then also there's a lot of invisible work behind collective action. So really trying to draw some of that out and show, you know, we can build institutions, we can redistribute time and money to make some of these strategies stronger and and just really making the case for that kind of long-term investment in social movement organizations and infrastructure. 
And then, yeah, we definitely also talk about some really specific strategies that we think in this moment can be the most, I think we say, transformative and winnable and kind of also propose a bit of a framework for trying to identify more of those strategies, but try to look for things that both provide material wins that get us closer to the vision that we have, but also strategies that at the same time make our movements or the terrain of struggle a little bit more favorable or powerful. I think it's hard to imagine the scale of action that we would need to win some of the things in today's politics, but trying to identify strategies that can get us some more powerful movement infrastructure so that some of those wins will be possible sooner rather than later. What do you say in the book about why it's so important to commit to a specifically decolonial just transition? And what does that mean for how you understand what we face and what we need to be doing? One of the things that we say in the introduction to the book is that if we concentrate on just decarbonizing society, something that we need to do and that we know we need to do, without focusing on the other issues that are at stake, what we're really going to end up with is a society that has greened theft. We know that so-called Canada is based on the theft of Indigenous lands and life, and we see a just transition as a potential entry point into re-examining and remaking those relationships that allow us to live in a good way on these lands. This book, in many ways, is rooted in Treaty 6 and 8 territories, especially because of Crystal and Dongel's contributions there and the struggles that they talk about in relation to their home nations in the book. And so we spend some time going back and thinking about what treaties are and looking at Indigenous interpretations of treaties and the fact that Indigenous nations never ceded nor surrendered their lands or their jurisdiction or their self-determination to Canada, even though Canada pretends as if they have and hasn't lived up to their side of the treaty-making process, in fact, never intended to, as we can see that the Indian Act came in you know, at precisely the time that many of the treaties were being signed. We sort of asked the question, what would Canada look like if we took those original frameworks that allow for settler existence in these lands as frameworks for thinking about how to live well together in these lands? And so we try to put the treaty framework, but also, you know, inherent Indigenous rights into not just, as Bronwyn suggested before, a siloed chapter about Indigenous issues. But if we're really going to take this seriously and decarbonize in a way that also undoes theft then we have to work through what that looks like in every sector. What does shared jurisdiction, for example, or dual jurisdiction look like when it comes to green infrastructure or when it comes to healthcare or when it comes to repatriating land, etc. Just to give a couple of examples in that list of transformative and winnable strategies that we think are really needed right now, the first one is looking to local land back struggles that can include some of the really well-known things like the coastal gas link, wet suit and solidarity work. But I think we also tried to expand that label of land back or indigenous sovereignty work to also include things like legal struggles or legal cases around land rights, or also lots of revitalization or reclamation work around indigenous languages, or we speak a lot as well in the book around indigenous laws and governance and reclaiming and revitalizing those as a really important tool for some of the legal frameworks we would want in a post-just transition world. 
Otherwise, though, there's a ton of other more concrete examples, which I think are helpful because, you know, we can't have climate justice without Indigenous rights is maybe a bit of a slogan that's, I think, pretty well understood or used at this point. But I think some of those more concrete, like how we actually enact that is less understood. I think part of that is because there's not just one solution. There's many, many different nations that we're speaking of that have different governance and would have a different idea around like what land back exactly looks like. To name two more, we talk about both for renewable energy or public transit or also for winding down oil and gas operations, what some of that dual jurisdiction could look like. And then also talk about how some other social movement institutions could really work to support Indigenous sovereignty. So we talk about labor movement revitalization and some of the tools that labor movement and Indigenous nations could use if they were working together more deeply. In the book's discussion of movement building, one of the things that you emphasize is the importance of movement infrastructure. What is that and why does it matter? What most people see of social movements is that like tip of the iceberg. And so in a more concrete way, movement infrastructure is the organizations working on any kind of collective action. There's definitely social movement work that is broader than also what people think of. So it can involve legal challenges, it can involve like building up the alternatives. But yeah, so I think it's the ecosystem of organizations, it's physical meeting spaces or gathering spaces. In terms of Indigenous sovereignty, there's lots of really cool land camps or spaces that a lot of different nations or grassroots Indigenous groups have reclaimed to be able to have physical gathering spaces. It's, I think, the coalition structure And then our other two pillars of movement infrastructure includes communications and media infrastructure. And then more broadly, are cutting across all of those things, the time, land, and money. So really what resources can go to support these things. And so there's both trying to think of where we can get resources to redistribute to build up infrastructure, and then also really thinking about strategies that can also lend to just building stronger infrastructure over time. So like what is a campaign or tactic that can make your organization more robust? Or, you know, is there a like training program or a school that would be really helpful to be able to give people some really tangible skills? Movement infrastructure is really about durability. One thing to highlight, I guess, is also that since colonization began, for example, there have been Indigenous peoples resisting colonization, and that is part of a longer infrastructure of resistance. So things that are sort of durable and have been built up over time that allow us to connect both the past to the present, but then also allow us to get somewhere different in the future. And so putting things in place through our actions and through our efforts that will allow a vision of a decolonial just transition to come to fruition. So that can include all of the things that Bronwyn just said. I think of them not necessarily as only material, but also as, as Bronwyn said, you know, communications and networks of reciprocity and all of those good things that allow us to continue to deepen and engage our struggles from the past and into the future. What does the book have to say about hope, given the magnitude of what we face? One thing that really gives me hope is a mindset shift that has been really helpful for me of reading and understanding a bit more about social movement history. 
and knowing that even though our challenges are different today than what they have been in the past, that there is this legacy of communities and people banding together against pretty harsh odds and often winning really cool things out of that and, you know, still persisting today, even if we didn't win all of those things. And then in terms of where we're at today, a lot of the solutions we talk about are really politically popular, like taxing the wealthy and corporations is really popular. Defending the police actually pulls pretty well. 72% of people support accelerated action to implement the calls of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And we even saw pretty popular support for like wet suit and blockades in February 2020. And so I think just the possibility of winning some of those things, we certainly don't have the movement infrastructure to win those quite yet. But I think almost everyone stands to really benefit from a just transition in a decolonial future. And so there's that gap of a lot of the work to get there, but it does feel like the odds in a lot of ways do still feel on our side. Being involved in writing the book was a fairly hopeful project, even though a lot of the things that we wrote about are things that I've been thinking about on and off for the last many years, compiling them and having them in one place and thinking about, oh yeah, you know, the dominant discourse tells us that there's no money, but really we can liberate all sorts of money from things that are really funding death and misery and destruction. And we can move it to places that really foster life and connection and vitality. And so having that vision laid out in one place and thinking about what kind of power we need to build, what kind of infrastructure we need to build, what kind of offensives we need to take in order to bring this into being was a really hopeful process. And we're hopeful that our readers also will enjoy being part of that and also be able to reflect for themselves on how they might fit in and also what they might change or refine in the vision or how to do it locally, what's appropriate to their communities. All of that, I think, can be a really empowering and hopeful process. What work do you hope that this book, as a piece of media circulating out there in the world, will do? A couple of things. There's a lot of climate plans or policies that are getting a lot of attention that I don't think go far enough. And similarly for government reconciliation or Indigenous rights initiatives, things that definitely don't go far enough. And in both of those categories, lots of things and policy action that's you know still actually just overtly very harmful for both of these issues. And so, yeah, I think just having something cohesive that does say, you know, there are other ways of doing this that are needed. I think that can be helpful in a number of ways, but it is kind of more the hoping to get to people who maybe are already involved in some social movement work or have been maybe thinking about it and hopefully giving people some tools or like a starting point to adapt from for maybe how to get involved themselves. Yeah, and I think the other piece there is that we tried to write a book, I think, that would allow many different movements and many different struggles to see themselves in the book as well. So some like major overarching principles around public services, for example. Right now, again, we have different associations and unions doing great work on promoting public services. How can we do that in a way that also then merges with these issues around Indigenous sovereignty and rights, or that also promotes decarbonization, but in a way that is fair and just. So sort of articulating or bringing together a bunch of issues that we know are popular, that movements have a long history of struggling for, and hoping to see that we can hold each other up in this work and create this project together. 
You have been listening to my interview with Bronwyn Tucker and Emily Eaton about The End of This World, Climate Justice in So-Called Canada, newly published by Between the Lines. For those of you who only encounter Talking Radical Radio through the show itself, this is a heads-up that the show will be ending its 10-year weekly run at the end of February 2023. And you can look at the pinned posts on our social media accounts for more information. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.